Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome to Hillsdale College's Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content-rich curricula, and teacher-led classrooms. And now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. We're joined today by Dr. John Fennell, Professor Emeritus of Education at Hillsdale College, former Dean of Social Sciences here at the college as well. Dr. Fennell, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be with you. We are pleased to have you with us for part of our series on the leading figures in education. And we talk with Dr. Fennell today about John Dewey. Tell us first, please, who is John Dewey? Uh, what was his background? When did he live? What should we know about him? Well, there's a lot we should know about him, not the least, uh, because if we understand Dewey, we understand much of what's going on in the country today. But let me be a little more specific. Uh, Dewey was an American, which doesn't sound profound to most of us who are listening today, but uh, uh, that made him rather unusual in the history of philosophy. He was born in 1859 in Vermont in a small town, and uh, that, is, that is thought to be important by many people, and I've puzzled over that several times. I think what they mean by that is that he came from a background that made him serious, and he was a deadly serious person. And as we will discover today, he was serious about changing the world. So he was born in a small town and ended up uh, going to uh, John Hopkins University in 1884. He received his uh, Ph.D. there. That was the first Ph.D.-granting institution in the country built on the German model. And he lived in 1952, and he was writing all that time, making big differences in the world. And I should add that... uh, Most people affiliated with Hillsdale and most people who consider themselves conservative always think of Dewey as the grand educator, which he was. Mm -hmm. But in the world today, and by this I mean the world as a whole, not just the American world, he is viewed as a very important philosopher. And that uh, is actually the dominant view of him in Europe today. What would you say was the state of the educational world around Dewey when he was writing and thinking about the subject of education? Who who was he influenced by? 
Well, those are two separate questions. Uh, as far as influence, uh, he was profoundly influenced by the philosopher Hegel. Now, he was not a Hegelian. He was not an idealist in the philosophical sense by any means. But he was strongly influenced by the emphasis on history, change over time, et cetera, et cetera, which is affiliated with Hegel. Mm-hmm. And even more, he was, he was influenced, as was just about everybody in the 19th century, by Darwin. And you cannot go more than an inch in understanding Dewey without thinking about the impact of Darwin's worldview. It, it's, it's at the very heart of Dewey's position. So as we will see as we get into his educational views today, uh, Darwin is always in the background providing justification, uh, providing meaning and so forth, as is Hegel. Now, as for the condition of the world of education, mm-hmm. uh, part of the reason Dewey was as important as he was is that he came along at a time which was unique in American education. Uh, historically, uh, you know, from the beginning, there, there weren't really public schools in this country. Most education was done informally in the family, perhaps through the churches and so forth. The well-do people perhaps had formal institutions. But it was only in the middle of the 19th century that Horace Mann in Boston established a formal public school system. And what was happening in the country, and we're going to see the Darwinian business again here, (laughs) what was happening in the country during the late 19th century was profound change. Uh, Lots of immigration, industrialization, et cetera, et cetera. And in conjunction with these changes, the schools began to change as well. So by 1890 or so, uh, we see public school systems build, uh, growing everywhere. But very few people went to high school. And Dewey's emergence on the scene coincides with a giant growth in public education, especially in high school. So Dewey happened to come along at a time when there was a sort of a vacuum he could fill, and he certainly filled it. How did how did Dewey respond to the education context around him, and, and, and did he give prescriptions to reform education? He responded to the education context, but to a considerable degree, he defined the education context, <laughs> the educational context. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to his biography for a minute. He received his Ph.D. in 1884, and... In between uh, undergraduate and graduate study, he taught for a couple years. But in 1884, Ph.D. in hand, he was hired by the University of Michigan and at Ann Arbor. And uh, he was there for 10 years. And during those 10 years, he was supposed to be teaching philosophy, but he actually uh, became very very authoritative in the new field of psychology. He wrote the first psychology textbook in 1886, Hmm. the first American one, at least. And by the time he left Ann Arbor, and that was uh, 1894, I believe, uh, he had become very interested in teaching, in the K-12 through teaching. And he went off to the University of Chicago at that point, and he, that was a brand-new institution at the time, and they hired him to run the philosophy department, but he insisted that he would only take the job if he could also run 
the pedagogy department. So from 1894 on, Dewey viewed himself as necessarily involved in both education and in philosophy. And for him, you can't separate things of that sort. He, he's, he had a lifetime, lifetime battle against uh, what we might call antinomies or oppositions. Mm-hmm. And for him, philosophy proved itself in practice. And so the best place to see philosophy proving itself is in education, because that's a very practical thing to do. So from in 1894, uh, he took the job at Chicago and very soon opened up what was called the Laboratory School in 1896 at Chicago. And for eight years, he ran that, on top of being the philosophy uh, chairman and so forth. He's running this school. And that's when his fame really grew. And that's why I mean... That's why I said that, uh, to a great degree, he defined the context, because people came from all over the world to visit this school to see what he was doing. And what he was doing was was experimenting hmm. on a new pedagogy. And he wrote about it extensively. And so the world was reading about it. Those who didn't visit were reading about it. So by 1904, when he left uh, Chicago... He had uh, become the, probably the most well-known uh, theorist of education in the United States. And by the way, I should add that later, in the 1920s and so forth, he went around the world as one of the most profound theorists in education. His, his fame uh, spread uh, around the world. In, in, in those somewhat early earlier days, why were people so interested in what he was doing? Did he have results to share? What, what exactly made him so uh, intriguing to others who came to visit and, and learn? Well, uh, there are probably many things we could say. Uh, a couple of things that occurred to me. Uh, first, as I tried to indicate earlier, the world was really changing profoundly at this time. And one of the biggest changes was that the traditional institutions for socialization of the young were less and less capable of achieving that end. And that was because so many people were crowded in the cities, and there were many, many immigrants who needed to be uh, brought into the American way of life and so forth. And Dewey recognized this crying need, that this was an instance of the need for Adaptation. Remember the Darwin business. Mm-hmm. We need to adapt to changing circumstances, and the circumstances were changing dramatically in the 1880s, 1890s, into the, 19th, into the 20th century. And here, along comes Dewey with a conception of the school that responds to these profound changes. Now, if you remember your Darwinian theory, species either adapt or they die. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is true for human beings. And if human beings are going to thrive, and if they're going to carry on, they need to change in accordance with the changes in the environment. Now, the environment is changing in the social and the political side profoundly. What are we going to do about that? Dewey says, I have the answer. The answer is we're going to use a specialized institution, the public school, as the mechanism through which we intelligently respond to these threatening changes in the environment. And many, many people recognize the changes, 
and they found Dewey's theory of education, his conception of the public school, to be very, very uh, appealing. Meanwhile, the, the schools are growing like a weed. I don't have the exact numbers here with me today, but I believe that in 1890, we, the number of children, the percentage of children in high school might have been, what, 5% or less. Hmm. By 1925, the percentage of children in high school is like 70 or 80%. So these institutions are just blossoming, and they're taking on more and more functions. And so Dewey becomes the theorist at the, at the macro level, but he's also becoming the theorist at the micro level within the schools. And so he's explaining you know, how best to organize the schools, how to, what aims they should be serving, and so on and so forth. So uh, the world is finding what he's doing quite welcome. And, uh, and as you can imagine, there's a giant growth in the number of people who are in education. Mm-hmm. And they are very, very interested in, in, in following Dewey. I should add one more thing. When Dewey was at Chicago until 1904, at that point he went off to Columbia University in New York. Now, Columbia is the university that has Teachers College. Now, Dewey was not part of Teachers College, but he was there on the campus of Columbia. Teachers College in the early 20th century became the premier institution in the country for the training of administrators in public schools and the training of many teachers. And the professors in Teachers College all viewed themselves as I say, uh, devotees of Dewey's theory. Now, Dewey himself wasn't in Teachers College, as I mentioned, but these other fellows went on for decades training tens of thousands of people who went out and defined the public school system in this country. Talking with Dr. John Fennell, Professor Emeritus of Education at Hillsdale College about John Dewey. We've talked around this a bit, but directly I'll ask, what did, what did Dewey believe was the purpose of education? Well, with the Darwinian paradigm, you might say, the purpose of education is going to be very practical. Mm-hmm. It's going to be what human beings do systematically and formally to improve their condition and respond appropriately to changing environments. Now, if you're a giraffe or you're, or you're a, a fox or even if you're a tree... Mm-hmm. You have to adapt. This is all done, of course, through unintelligent uh, mechanisms. But what makes human beings different is that they have intelligence. And so Dewey says, I mean, for him this is so obvious, he can't understand why anyone's <laughs> resisting. Uh, we, we, are the, we are the intelligent creatures. In our tool chest, we have, a, we have an instrument no one else has. Let's use this instrument. And so intelligence... When it's employed, among the many things, and this is going to remind you of left-wing politics today, among the things that we have to employ as instruments and adaptation are institutions. And those institutions include schools, but also government and all of its various departments, and also institutions such as the workplace and so forth. All of these things are to be enlisted in order to uh, respond appropriately to, to the changing universe. 
Where do you think that we would uh, see Dewey's ideas at play in American education today? You mentioned earlier in the interview, by understanding Dewey, we understand a lot of what happens today in education. Go a bit deeper into that, please. Well, this is really interesting. Um, many, many progressive uh, professors believe that the public schools have failed dismally in implementing Dewey's position. Meanwhile, conservative commentators believe that the public schools are permeated with Dewey's madness, right? And, and, and so the truth is somewhere in between. And, and it's, it's, it's a little subtle, I think. It, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not as simple as saying that my mother, for example, when I was old enough to go to school, she put me in a private school because she had read somewhere that San Diego Public Schools, where I was living, mm-hmm. Were, were Dewey influenced? <laughs> now she didn't know anything about Dewey, but she she knew that Dewey influenced was bad. Hmm. So I wasn't going to go to a public school. It, it's more complicated than that. Dewey believed that he had a very he had a very uh, can I say deep seated understanding of of human nature. You know his his view of human nature, and under this view, not only did young people learn naturally that is to say uh if they if they were allowed to follow their interests they would learn most of what they needed to learn and the the metaphor for this is oftentimes used is the the blossoming flower you don't have to tell a flower how to blossom just mm-hmm. you know, give it some air give it some water you know just let it do its thing and it'll be beautiful and there's a little bit of that in Dewey. You know, it's, it's, it's not nearly as pronounced as his critics say, but there is some of that in Dewey for sure. But more importantly, Dewey subscribed to a presupposition regarding human psychology that there was a, a human nature to be discovered, and in light of what we discover about this human nature, pedagogy should follow. So... What this meant was when, when, when these views were implemented in educational contexts, it was easy for people who thought themselves to be Dewey-like to say such things as, let the children alone. And would, they would also say such things as, do not require them to do this or don't require them to do that. Just let them be like the flower and they will emerge nicely. Now, this isn't the way Dewey himself thought but it is the way that he was interpreted. Now, one of the implications, and there are many, many implications, I think, of, of, of this for the school, is that people who view themselves as progressive are very reluctant to require content. And if there's going to be content, they want the children to be the people who see the point of it, rather than having a, an adult say to the children, you must learn the following. Mm-hmm. And it's not only that they're reluctant to have content, but they're reluctant to impose it at, a, at the inappropriate time. Remember this, this psychological presupposition that there are like stages and so forth, and there are points at which you are ready. If you're familiar, I'm sure, with the book uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, yes. that there's a chapter in there where the protagonist, which is the little girl scout, I think her name is, she talks about her public school, and her teacher is right right out of teacher certification program and you can almost see teachers college there <laughs> and, and and this little girl is is just 
reflecting, because she's the narrator, she's reflecting on the, the madness that was going on in the classroom as a result. For example, she had learned to read at home, and the teacher found that she was able to read at a level far beyond the other children. And the teacher says, you can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you're not supposed to be reading at that level. Let's, let's stop that. <laughs> well, uh, my point here is, is that people ran really hard with their understanding of Dewey. And my view, and I think it's, it's, it's a common view, not universal, is that much of Dewey's theory permeates the schools, to answer your question, just permeates them. It utterly permeates teacher, uh, teacher preparation programs. If you went to Michigan State or Eastern Michigan or whatever, you would find much of this just the air they breathe. They don't even know what they're breathing. It's just there. It's always been there. But the professors, some of them turn around and say, well, Dewey hasn't been implemented. They fail to see just how much elements of his views have become just presupposed. It's just, just, it's just what they do. And that comes to the fore when a school has the gall not to do these things. Then it's very evident what these, what these things are because they're not being done. And so you will find professors of education in all honesty saying that it's child abuse to require memorization. You will find them saying that it's child abuse to have direct instruction in the classroom and require children to sit in rows and to you know have good deportment and so forth. At the root of all of that, that that criticism is a set of uh, of presuppositions that are not acknowledged, and they go back to the earliest influence of Dewey. Now, I'm not saying that Dewey's himself personally responsible for all of this. He is responsible, I would say, for the ease with which these things happened <laughs> and became the, can I say, the, uh, the accepted way of teaching. Mm-hmm. But uh, he wrote a book in 1938, and by this point, you know, he's getting pretty old. But he wrote a book in 1938 called Experience in Education. It's a very short book, and it's written for practitioners, so I used to use it all the time in my course. And in this book, he goes to extraordinary lengths to criticize so-called progressive education because so much that was done under that heading was, from his point of view, very stupid. It didn't even, be, didn't even approach the sophistication of what he was recommending. Now, he, that doesn't mean he defends the traditional approach. He would have no use for the Barney Charter Schools, for example, because they, they engage in practices which he viewed as uh, non-democratic and so forth. But still, that didn't mean that he endorsed everything that was done in opposition to the traditional schools. So the truth of the matter is he's, he's, he's in neither camp, but he certainly is largely responsible for what uh, critics would call the progressive slant of the schools. Hmm. One final question for Dr. John Fennell as we talk about John Dewey. What books is Dewey best known for if listeners would want to learn more, or alternately or additionally, any good summaries, perhaps written by someone else, on Dewey? Well, first, uh, I should mention that there is a huge literature on Dewey. Uh, it's, it's impossible to exaggerate how big it is. <laughs> and people have been writing about Dewey 
for a hundred years now, and he's still very, very uh, widely read and taught and so forth in uh, in the universities. I mentioned earlier that uh, during his lifetime, if you said the word John Dewey, or the name John Dewey, almost universally he would be viewed as that education guy. But what happened in the 1990s is the Europeans finally woke up to Dewey, and they came to realize that he is a, a very important philosopher. So during the 20th century, uh, Dewey was was all over the place, hmm. uh, widely widely associated with the changes in the schools, and that sort of petered out in the ni- early 1950s. And then when the 60s came by, you know, the, the radical 60s, Dewey was resurrected, so he became sort of well-known again around 1968, 1970. And then uh, we don't hear much about him except in universities until the 1990s when suddenly people realized that he was a philosopher of some significance. Hmm. Now, that, the 1990s triggered a number of big books on Dewey, and uh, one of them was by Alan Ryan, R-Y-A-N. Uh, I have found that useful. It's, it's a big book, because Dewey is a big guy with a, you know, a long life. And there were several other big books on Dewey that, that hark from that decade. There are, here and there, some critical pieces from the right on Dewey. Sometimes these are not done at all well. It's sort of embarrassing. Hmm so I won't mention any names. There is a book that is written by somebody who views himself as progressive, but but believes that Dewey was very much wrong in some ways. And this this author's name is Kieran, K-I-E-R-A-N, Egan, E-G-A-N. And this book is called Getting It Wrong from the Beginning. And it's a very interesting book. Uh, he purports to find at the very bottom of Dewey, at the, at the foundation of Dewey, a misunderstanding of human nature, which could be very uh, very useful for people who are bombarded with progressive education to, to look at. But as I said, I mean, there, there are thousands and thousands of books and articles on Dewey. Dewey himself had a huge literature. The biography... Uh, I mean, the bibliography, rather. The bibliography for Dewey's writings is 150 pages long. And he had, oh, 20 or 30 books. His his most important book is Democracy and Education, written in 1916. That's tough going. It's a dry book, so I wouldn't recommend that to, uh, as as a first reading in Dewey. Mm -hmm. I did mention Experience in Education, I think that's very, very useful. His most famous educational statement is called My Pedagogic Creed from 1897. And that's, he just lays it out there. I mean, he says, I believe. And then he goes on and on for several pages. I believe. And it just, it's just laid out like a doctrine. And many of his critics find many things in there that they uh, don't agree with. If you're interested in his political and social thought, Liberalism and Social Action from 1935 is very enlightening. And I was teaching Dewey during the Obama administration, and I, without, I mean, I wasn't being, I wasn't trying to be funny at all. The best way to understand President Obama is to read John Dewey. Hmm. And in fact, if you, if you want to understand 
the progressive mind and the liberal impulse. He's not fooling around. <laughs> he really meant to change the world, and he, to a great degree, succeeded at that. Dr. John Fennell, Professor Emeritus of Education at Hillsdale College, also former Dean of Social Sciences here at the college. On our Leading Figures in Education series, we talk about John Dewey. Dr. Fidel, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast. Thank you.